Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the Internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show. It is Tuesday, June 16th, 2020. I am your host, Scott Fullerton. Hope your week has started off fantastic. Things are going by way too quickly here in Northeast Ohio as I get ready for the Big Gay Road Trip Part 3. I leave in less than three weeks. It's three weeks from this past Sunday. But I'm excited. We have lots of fun stuff going on. We had intern training this past weekend. I found some great guys and gals to help me out. And behind the scenes today, I have Royal and Han in the studio making sure everything runs smoothly for us today. So welcome to them. Uh, So excited to have a brand new set of interns. We had some last year, and it's always exciting when people can learn a little internet radio, and they're going to be creating their own podcast and a good time will be had by all if you guys missed yesterday's show and why would you darn it it was a great musical monday we had our buddy jay knight on for our special correspondent and he did a great independent music tip of the day and introduced us to a new independent artist jay gregory so that was lots of fun And then our first interview yesterday, we had good friends of the show, Brandon and James. They are a vocal and cello duo. Brandon was on America's Got Talent, season eight. He has a new book coming out in September he'll be back for. Uh, James has the very sexy Australian accent, of course, being from Australia. And they brought a special guest with them. They have brought Miss Conception, a fantastic drag queen from Canada, who appears on their latest video that they just released yesterday. So that was a very fun Music Monday. After them, uh, we had Brian Justin Crum, also from America's Got Talent. I think he was season 11 and All-Stars, and we had a great chat. So if you missed any of that, you can always go to the Leftist Trade Show archives right here on Blog Talk Radio. Or just download us at your favorite podcast distributor. It's on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio. And always hit the little subscribe button. That way you always get a notification whenever a new episode comes up. And you can listen to it at your leisure. Today I have a great show in store for you. In just a couple of seconds we're going to talk to... My good buddy Andy Dugan at Equality Ohio, he's the lawyer for the Equality Ohio Law Center here in Northeast Ohio. And we're going to talk about the amazing Supreme Court ruling yesterday giving us equal rights in workplace 
rights for all LGBTs. Kind of exciting, also kind of worrisome. That's the only thing it gives us all the rights on. You can still discriminate against us in a lot of other ways. So we're going to talk about all that with Andy in just a couple moments. And then I got two great interviews for you today. First up is going to be our buddy Danny Lee Gomez. He's an actor, a comedian, and a host out of Southern California. And we had a great chat the other day. And then we're going to finish up tonight with David Beebe. David is an award-winning producer. He's produced some really cool um, web series that are offshoots of some of your favorite television series. He's in a web series from Grey's Anatomy, from Ugly Betty, from Scrubs, and he's also produced a great award-winning food travel show, and you know what kind of a foodie I am. So David's going to come and talk about producing those, and he is also trademarked as the um, brand storyteller. He is like a whiz at creating brands and how to tell a story with them and bringing some of the biggest names around like Yahoo and um, all sorts of great brands that he's brought to the forefront. So a great show for you today. I will be uh, back to talk about how everything went. These are all pre-taped interviews. I talked to um, Andy just earlier today over to Quality Ohio, and I talked to Danny and David Um, at the end of last week. So we're going to play all three pre-taped interviews. This is a live show, though. I may break up in between and offer a new song, and I'll definitely be back to finish it at the end. So we're going to start here and play a little bit of Andy Dugan's interview. So listen up. You're listening to the Leftist Straight Show right here on the Leftist Straight Radio Network. We'll be back in just a little bit. I fell in love with a photo Heels for a face I'll never know Squeaky clean in a bathrobe Just a hint of the skin That hides below I can't help it I'm already, already Daydreaming this fantasy, fantasy Repeating but nobody's stripping for me All I got are these eyes Looking out of my screen
we met outside the frame I might want nothing to do with you If we met outside the frame I might want to put you back in you guys, I am very happy to bring back my next guest to the show. He's a hometown boy here from Northeast Ohio who's now working for Equality Ohio in their legal clinic. I was so fortunate to have him on the show a few weeks back where we talked about protections and things to do with COVID as far as unemployment benefits and more and some of the major cases that were happening in court in our state here in Ohio. Well, as you all know, one of these cases has come down yesterday, two actually, and he's back to talk about them with me and all of you. So please welcome back to the show the handsome, charming, and very smart Mr. Andy Dugan from Equality Ohio Law. Andy, how you doing, buddy? I am doing great. Thank you so much, Scott, for um, having me back on the show. Um, I am very happy that we were able to talk about this, um, especially in the midst of everything going on with COVID and the very important nationwide demonstrations in support of black lives and against systemic racism. Um, these decisions were definitely needed and definitely heartening and encouraging uh, during this trying time. Yeah, exactly. I don't know about you. I mean, you especially being a lawyer, but I was getting whiplash going from not being able to adopt to not taking away trans health care to having Pride Month to Black Lives Matter needing to be talked about again to now a victory in the Supreme Court. It's like, my head is spinning, dude. I just don't know how you're handling it all. Yeah, no, it's definitely been um, a whirlwind of events. Um, and uh, we, I'd love to talk about the, um, the new proposed Trump rule um, regarding health care. Um, the Supreme Court decisions don't have a direct impact on that, um, but definitely a little you know, thumb in the eye to the LGBTQ community last week for sure um, by the current administration. Um, but thankfully we have this uh, Supreme Court decision at least um, to be happy about and hopefully then to see how it's going to um, how the ruling will be interpreted going forward and see how else it um, impacts the LGBTQ folks. Exactly. Well, let's start with this good news here and then we'll talk about things we still need to work on. This law that uh, was decided was from Title VII. So that handles workplace rights and discrimination. And I think I said it correctly was actually two cases they've consolidated their answer into one. Am I correct on that? Actually, it was a total of three cases. Um, And so there were two cases, um, one called um, Zarda, Z-A-R-D-A, and another known as Bostock uh, versus Clayton County, which is in Georgia. Um, Those Mm. two cases um, dealt with gay men who were fired from their jobs after their employers learned of their sexual orientation. The third case um, concerned Amy Stevens, 
who was a transgender funeral home director in Michigan, um, which is actually in the same circuit as Ohio for the federal circuits. Um, and she was explicitly fired for um, coming, out as, coming out to her employer. Um, the Supreme Court often will consolidate cases that have very similar issues. And so that's what – so the Supreme Court back – um, last fall when they had oral arguments, they actually had one hour of arguments regarding the Zarda and Bostock cases, which concerned sexual orientation, and then, then they had another oral argument concerning Amy Stevens um, and uh, gender identity discrimination. Okay. Throughout – so since that time, we were really – Concerned. We didn't know how the decision would go, um, especially given the current makeup of the Supreme Court. Um, there, the decision could have went, you know, yet, you know, yes for gender identity, no for sexual orientation, or vice versa. It could have been no for both. Um, but to be frank, this was probably the best decision um, that we could have envisioned coming out of these cases. Right. And I mean, I heard it said like as important as the marriage equality was. Not everybody wants to get married, but everyone wants to have the right to work if they want to, right? Exactly. No, exactly. Um, and so this decision will it will apply, as you said, Title Seven is the federal. Uh, Title Seven is the section of the Civil Rights Act that specifically deals with discrimination in employment. Um, and so it applies to any employer that has more than fifteen employees. Um, so a good chunk of the employers across the country. Um, and so, and so what the court found was that, yes, discriminating against an employee because they're gay, lesbian, transgender, that is per se discrimination on the basis of their sex, which right. is a huge, huge decision. Um, Justice Gorsuch, who was nominated um, by President Trump to fill the vacant seat um, from Anton Scalia, he is something known as a textualist. And so there's a few different like legal theories or ways that some judges approach cases. So he really is just looking at the plain text of a statute. And the plain text mm. of the statute says because of sex. So would you fire an employee? Um, would you fire a man who was uh, dating a woman? No. But would you fire a man who's dating a man? Yes. Well, then that is because of their sex. And so now um, what the Supreme Court recognized finally is that, yes, firing someone just because they're gay or transgender is inherently discrimination on the basis of their sex. That is amazing. Now, I do have a question from one of my listeners. I kind of put it out there that I was going to be trying to talk to somebody. They were wondering – they're a teacher, so now they're protected as a teacher – um, from discrimination, but does that also apply to private schools? Do we know that? Is this, since this is a federal ruling, are Catholic schools or private schools allowed to fire based on sex now or sexual orientation? So let's separate that a little bit, um, particularly in for like religious based or um, parochial schools. So that decision not, is not necessarily has been decided yet. And okay. so there is something – there are exceptions, known, something known as the ministerial exception. Um, and so generally speaking, what that means is someone who's engaged in the running of a, of a church, you know, a, a priest, a rabbi, an imam, um, a, a pastor, anyone that is – you know, has th – that is their job, um, then they would not be – those would not fall under the federal statute. They would be excluded. 
And many times, many, many teachers, specifically for parochial schools, may need to sign some type of um, employment contract where um, there might be some type of quote-unquote morality clause where they okay. agreed to abide by the tenets of a church or um, mosque or something like that. Um, and so that decision right now, that is still, um, that has not been decided for okay. anyone that, so for any um, employees of either like, you know, a, relig- uh, a religious institution, obviously, but like religious affiliated institutions. Um, so that, so that is not, that is still up in the air. And that is, um, the court will most likely decide that at a later date you know, when a case presents itself. Okay, very good, very good. Let's talk about what it did not decide, because we have our um, Equality Fairness Act we're trying to get done here. What are we still trying to get done this has nothing to do with? <laughs> a lot of things. Um, there are still critical gaps in both the federal laws um, and here in Ohio. Um, while um, queer folk um, have some legal protection from discrimination at work under federal law, um, that's, it's, it's not all-encompassing. So for any type of like public accommodations, so stores, restaurants, hotels, if you want to think about um, housing discrimination, you know, landlords, mm. um, creditors, um, things like that, this has nothing to do with like restrooms. This has nothing to do with health care. Um, this has nothing to do with education. Um, and so there are still everything that is non-employment um, is not necessarily it, it is not covered by this decision. Um, now, how courts interpret this decision in those areas going forward, those are decisions for later days. Um, but right now, so there's federal protection in employment for companies that have more than 15 employees. So then if you have less than 15 employees, again, you may not be protected. So really, this is it's a huge win, and it really, really is, but there, it is not everything. Um, and there still are a lot of different other areas that need um, to be addressed, either by the Ohio Fairness Act at the state level or the Equality Act at the federal level. And was there anything else we're looking to come out of the Supremes right now that we're looking to do? So, yes, no, there are still um, several cases. Um, one of the most high-profile ones most likely will be one concerning DACA, the Deferred Action Against Childhood Arrivals. Um, and so as as many of your listeners know, and as you probably know, um, President Obama instituted DACA um, to help protect um, children who came to this country um, with their parents or, you know, with a loved one or something like that. Um, And through no fault of their own, they're here, uh, but they might not have the right papers. And so President Obama protected them. President Trump then went and rescinded that protection. And so there's been um, court cases regarding that. (laughs) And that's what, um, so that most likely um, that decision will be coming out next week. So that is definitely a a big one. There are also some other cases that have been percolating may not come out um, this, this time around, as you briefly mentioned earlier, I think maybe even before we had the chance to be recording, but for um, like adoption cases, there's actually a case that will be making its way through the court system. Um, City of Philadelphia. um, It is where the city was trying to, uh, or the city instituted a uh, policy that government contractors could not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. And then there was a Catholic social service organization that did adoption that was then did not get their contract renewed um, because they would not abide by the the city's new policy. So that most likely will be next time around. Um, so this is definitely a big win, but there's still a lot of work to do, um, not just for LGBTQ rights, but as like demonstrated right. by the DACA case, by people across the country. 
Right. And the adoption one, I think, came into the news because the Trumps filed a Friends of the Court brief or something and sided with the religious freedom, right? And got the yes, got they the did. The other day. Okay. And that's actually what was also pretty interesting about the current cases, that the current decisions that just came out. So obviously, well, maybe not obviously, everyone, well, President Obama was in favor of the individuals that were discriminated against. Um, and then when President Trump came in, they reversed the, the government reversed its decision. Um, and then so mainly the government was on the side of the employers who um, fired the gay and transgender individuals. Now, except for one, except for the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, um, stuck it out and actually was on the side of um, Amy Stevens. Um, and so they, oh, wow. they were the only government agency that actually um, that was on the side of the LGBTQ people. Um, the rest right. of the federal government um, was not, and actually even including like here in Ohio, um, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost um, filed a, a, an Amici brief, a um, friend of a court brief, um, in favor of um, allowing employers to discriminate against LGBTQ people. Mm. All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to the latest rule now in healthcare. Um, it's not for all LGBT. This is primarily concerning our transgender brothers and sisters, right? Yes. What this actually has to deal with is this very particular section, uh, prote- section uh, 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. And so during President Obama's administration, they interpreted the word sex discrimination under that particular section. Um, to apply against queer and transgender people, as well as, um, and also had some things to deal with abortion. But mainly for what our purposes, what we're talking about is um, how it affected LGBTQ people. Now, um, what the government did, they earlier um, indicated that they were not supportive of that rule and that they planned to change it. Um, so actually, I believe what it was on, it was on the um, fourth anniversary of the um, Pulse nightclub shooting, the, the federal government announced this new rule um, that they are rolling it back. And so that they, and I'm sorry for saying this, um, but that the government's interpretation of sex discrimination, according to the meaning of the word sex as male or female and as determined by biology. Again, I am sorry, their words, not mine. <laughs> um, right. And so that rule most likely will go into effect in August. And so this will greatly affect particularly transgender people, and most notably like um, transgender people of color who have by far um, have indicated that they have at least faced um, discrimination from one medical provider at some point during their life. Now, right. most likely um, this rule will get challenged um, by, you know, the normal great warriors, the ACLU, Lambda Legal, those types of organizations. Um, right. And so I, I, it's too early to know um, what will actually, if that rule A will go into effect um, and then B, what the eventual outcome of it will be. And so, but that will have a, a, a large impact on people. And not even withstanding that rule that I understand that, you know, obviously President Obama did that with the best intentions and hoped that all insurance companies would comply with it. Um, but right. Greater Quality Ohio, our, le- our legal clinic, we regularly see folks um, who have been mostly like either de- denied um, some type of gender affirming treatment um, through their insurance mm. company. And so helping with um, both with private insurance, but then also um, with some public plans. And so even with that rule on the books, people have faced difficulty getting the medical care that they need and deserve and are entitled to. 
this will only right. make it harder. And oh, so, um, so frustrating. Yeah, I guess it's a little too early. Yeah, it's unbelievably frustrating, um, especially with everything going on in the current climate. Um, for them to issue that rule, and again, especially on the the anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting, um, it really is just kind of a big middle finger to the LGBTQ community. It really is, and you know what? I honestly, Nagash, I think that the president is too stupid to know these things. I just don't think that he puts the two together. And honestly, I don't think he cares. I don't think he really cares about anyone else's rights. I think it's someone in the administration that's like, well, this would really hurt. Let's do it this day. Because they just seem so tone deaf that I don't think that it could be an accident a couple times in a row for the things they've done in the past and are doing in the future. Just amazing to me. No, it it definitely is amazing. And I know one thing that we um, may have hypothesized about, obviously we have known this, but there there could have been an indication that maybe they knew that this decision was going to come out. And that's why they did it when they did, um, just to kind of preemptively do it. Uh, But again, we don't know that. We have no information on that. That's just a hypothesis. Um, And I I may um, agree with you about the current president and his uh, intellectual capabilities. Definitely not his vice president. I definitely feel like his vice president would know some of those things. And he is um, not a friend of the LGBTQ community, that's for sure. True that, my friend. True that for sure. Well, Andy, I kind of feel like I have a lawyer on retainer having Ohio Equality having our back of the radio show here. You're amazing, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, no, honestly, we really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. Um, Thank you for thinking of us during this really exciting time. Even with today's decision, though, it really is important to just remember that, um, you know, black and brown LGBTQ people really still are facing disproportionate discrimination in all aspects of their lives. Um, And until our laws remedy that systemic racism and inequality, the the movement to reach full LGBTQ equality can never be realized. Um, And so it really is important to keep that in mind. But this is a really this is a welcome and heartening decision. And I am very excited to see how this decision hopefully can expand to help protect people in other aspects of their lives outside of employment. There you go. Very well said. And you and your team and coworkers uh, and supervisors and everything are on the front line here in Ohio. Remind everyone again, you do amazing work out of the clinic there. The hours that you're taking um, inductions and everything, let everyone know, Uh, in Ohio, at least, where they can reach out to you. I know they have to be um, residents of Ohio, but let them know. Yeah, so any um, any LGBTQ person who makes less than 300% of the federal poverty level um, is able to reach out to us for direct representation. Um, You can reach us on our website, equalityohio.org, and then you can also reach us on our hotline, 1-855-LGBT-LAW. Um, so one eight five five L G B T L A W. Our normal office hours are nine to five. Um, if you call outside of that those times, just please um, leave us a message and we'll get back to you. Um, but I would really highly encourage anyone who's from Ohio that might need that might benefit from our services to reach out to us. Fantastic. And last thing I'll ask you before I let you go here is, uh, as we've talked about before, Quality Ohio is so supportive of all the prides all over. The state of Ohio, they go, they're out there every freaking weekend. We've gone virtually almost everyone, but Columbus was moved back to October. Does that still seem like it's a go? Do we know yet? 
Yeah, to be honest, I don't have, I wish I had some insider information. I do not. As far as I know, it's still, you know, a big tenor, tentative asterisk um, postponed to the fall. Um, let's see what is going on with the coronavirus then. Um, there you yeah, go. Yeah, it, it, definitely, we do miss seeing everyone's faces she this month. Know. Um, but at least pride is going back to its roots right now with all of the protests. So that would really, so long as you feel safe, I'm um, going so and wearing a face mask. I would really encourage people um, to go out and show their support um, by being at a protest, by posting on social media, um, by if you have the financial ability to contribute to a lot of great organizations, but particularly organizations that are um, run by Black queer folks. Um, so those are great different ways that you can help show your pride this month. As always, well said, my friend. All right, well, go ahead and stay on the line for me, please, Andy. Guys, please check out Follow Equality Ohio and Equality Ohio Law. They are both on Instagram. I appreciate you so much, my friend. Thanks for being on the Left of Straight show. We're going to play a little song here, and when I come back, we'll have our first interview tonight. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network.
we are back. That was Matt Van Fossen with Time's Not What It Used to Be. If you missed my interview with Matt a couple weeks ago, try to go check the Left of Straight archives for that. We had a good conversation. But let's jump into it, guys. I'm excited to bring my next guest on the show. It's his first appearance on the Left of Straight show. I came across him through our good buddy Stan Zimmerman. So we started chatting a bit on Instagram machine, and I'm happy to agree he came on the show. He's an actor, host, writer, and comedian who describes himself as if John Mulaney and Ryan Reynolds had a love child, you would get him, a handsome, nice guy with just enough start to still be charming. So based on his Instagram, I can definitely attest to the former, and we'll put him to the test on the latter here. Please welcome to the show for the very first time, Mr. Danny Gomez. Danny, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing so good, so good. I, I, I feel like I can hear the applause after that. It just makes me want to – I'm just a person, they everybody. I'm just a person. screaming. <laughs> they are screaming your name. The chants are going crazy here. Hey, thanks uh, for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. We're in the middle of uh, eight world-ending things going on right now, especially in L.A. being <laughs> the southern central of it all. How are you holding up personally? You doing good? I'm doing great. I'm doing great, man. We've been uh, we've been actually super blessed, and I don't know. It's it's almost been a little bit of a recharge with everything going on, and I don't know. It it, it feels kind of like a good thing, you know. Your muscle can't build up unless it's broken down first, and I feel like that's kind of what's happening in the country right now. Well said. I like that. All right. Well, it's your first time on the show, yeah. man. So let's kind of get a little bit of background. Tell my listeners where'd you grow up and what kind of a kid were you. Uh, yeah, I grew up all over the place. We moved probably every other year when I was a kid. I went to five elementary schools, two middle schools, two high schools. Uh, finally landed in a little town uh, in Memphis, Tennessee called Germantown. We had an amazing fine arts department there. Uh, actually won two daytime Emmy Awards in high school, uh, student Emmys for producing. And that kind of led me to New York City, where I spent about 11 years working um, as an actor, which, you know, means working as a waiter pretty much. Uh, and then I decided <laughs> to get a little bit more serious. And I, uh, I moved out to Los Angeles about four years ago. And it was, it was the right move. Very nice. We're going to go through that career a bit. I'm excited to talk about all parts of that. I want to talk for a second, though, about coming out. I don't like to do coming out stories, but when did you first come out to yourself? And tell me, when did you first find your LGBTQ tribe? kind of feel part of the community well i'd have to say it was when i saw devin sawa walking down the staircase in casper uh ah. when i was probably in like third second grade i guess i was uh i remember i kept rewinding back to the point where casper becomes like a boy and like he's walking down the staircase and i'll keep on rewinding back that part and i kept thinking to myself i think i want to be him and then when i got older i realized Oh, no, that's not what that was. I had a huge crush on him, and I didn't know what to call it because I was a kid living in suburban Tennessee. Um, so that was that's really the hilarious. first time, like, I really realized that attraction was there. And then, you know, all throughout, like, middle school and high school, I was still dating girls and um, kind of going through that internal battle of, like, well, maybe I can like both, um, knowing deep down that that wasn't quite who I was. And then... I moved to New York City, and I met this really great gal who I loved a lot, and we actually lived together, and we had that breakup story where uh, I finally had to tell her one day, like, I, I'm sorry, I, just, I don't think I can be with a woman, and it was heartbreaking, and 
really, really hard. And she actually was amazing through it all. And like a week after all this happened, she came into our living room and she handed me a note that said, I still loved you. And uh, we're still friends to this day. And yeah, since then I've been on the man train and it's, it's, it's a pretty nice train. Yeah. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Well, talk about New York. I mean, you went there at 18 years old, bright-tailed and bushy-eyed. What was that like? <laughs> I, I don't know how bright-eyed I was. Uh, this was, I guess, 2005, <laughs> 2006 when I moved up there. And um, I finished high school, and I spent a couple months in Memphis where I went to school, went to high school. And uh, finally I realized, like, I just wasn't doing anything, and I've always been – an actor and I went to this great fine arts high school. So I decided that it was time to make some moves. I had $200 in my pocket and I moved in with a friend of a friend of mine, somebody I'd never met who lived in Edison, New Jersey. And let me tell you, Edison, New Jersey is not close to New York city. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But when I, when I moved, I didn't even know that Manhattan was an Island. Like I had no, concept of what New York was I just knew that I wanted to be there and I wanted to be in the middle of it so I moved in with this girl and uh I would take the uh the New Jersey transit into the city and I remember the first day I got off the uh the train in New York and I was going to audition for this acting conservatory and I got off the train at Penn Station I walked out and I was just staring up at the buildings just in awe and almost like a movie somebody just walked right up slammed into me (laughs) And told me I needed to watch where I was going. I was like, okay. So I neither guess jump on or jump off. And uh, I jumped on and auditioned for an acting conservatory. I went there for two years, the New York Conservatory of Dramatic Arts, um, which was a great school. I don't know that teen-year-old is really ready to make that sort of financial commitment. But, yeah, I went there for two years and then – Spent a couple years after that kind of looking for acting jobs, but mostly doing the restaurant game and um, eventually got my, got my act together enough to where I started auditioning and things kind of blossomed from there. Nice. I love that. And talk about, I mean, you, you say you kind of got your act together and I want to go into it. You've kind of transformed yourself through through yoga and meditation and everything. I want to talk about some of the rough years, though. You had a, a tough time going uh, when you first got to New York. Talk about that and what brought you out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I I have this, like, theory that what is going on in you internally finds a way to manifest externally. And when I moved to New York, you know, I was very lost. I have been playing with a lot of different substances when I was in Memphis. I was doing a lot of cocaine and drinking a ton. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to get out of the city that I was living in and move to New York. But, you know, you can't just move locations and expect that your problems are not going to move with you. Um, So a lot of that came with me into uh, New York. And that was another one of the reasons why, you know, acting school is great of a school as it was I wasn't really able to get much out of it just because I wasn't together enough um and I eventually started developing this problem when I was like 18 where my entire face was super swollen all the time um I Mm. I don't know if you ever watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer but um you know when the vampire turns from a person into the vampire face and they get kind of weird through the eyes I looked like that all the time um, 
and that led to like just a huge depression. And then it turned into this whole, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like me having this substance abuse problem causing me to look like this, or was it me looking like this that caused me to have these substance abuse problems? Um, mm. And that, of course, you know, being an 18 year old actor in New York City and having zero confidence just led to a multitude of other problems. And um, thankfully, my, my sister and I are really close. She's one of my best friends. And uh, when I was maybe 20, I saw her do a full Ironman competition. Insane, like, top of the, uh, yeah, I guess, world of fitness kind of event. Um, and after seeing her do that, I was like, if she can do this, which is a two-and-a-half-mile swim, I think a 116-mile bike ride, and then a full marathon all in one go, I could probably run a marathon. And so I started training, um, started running every day. And then that kind of gave me a little bit of a schedule. And then I went back to school for advertising and marketing. I mean, that's a whole nother story, but uh, that also gave me a little bit more consistency in life. And then that all led to me making a lot of changes and a lot of positivity came from it. And eventually some of those substance abuse problems started going away on their own. And then some of the other issues I, uh, I had to more actively work on discovered yoga, as you mentioned, and that has been a huge game changer. Um, actually fitness all around. Like it's amazing what it can do for you physically, obviously, but also mentally and the confidence I can instill in one. Right. Very cool. I love that story. And, uh, from yoga and running and cyclists, one of the things we kind of talked about when we first were talking on Instagram was you uh, participated in the AIDS life cycle event, which I know a lot of people that perform that every that do that every year. It's a grueling event, but it's also one of the most inspiring events. Unfortunately, it had to go virtual this year. Talk about what that was like for you when you did it. Yeah. Um, well, to, uh, full disclosure, actually, I haven't done the AIDS life cycle ride, ride before. I used to do a ride in New York from Boston to New York City called the Breaking AIDS Ride. Um, I did that for three years in a row, and then I moved out here. And this year was supposed to be my first year doing the AIDS Life Cycle Ride. Um, That's right. You told me that. I was so bummed to do it, and then it got canceled. Um, and then, believe it or not, my bike got stolen during quarantine. So, no. Just some different things. Yes, yes. And that bike was like, my big outlet during this time period. Um, so even if the ride had progressed, I wouldn't have had a bike to do it this year. So instead during that week, um, I ran miles, I did push-ups, and instead of doing the bike ride, um, the AIDS life cycle organization was pushing for people to do 545 of something just to, cause that's how many miles the ride normally is. Um, right. and that was supposed to be the impetus to get donations and things like that. So, between my running miles, the push-ups I did, the squats I did, I hit the 545 number. But next year, I'm definitely doing the ride again. Um, the one in New York, the, the Breaking AIDS ride, it's a lot smaller. But before I did that ride, I don't think that I ever had, like, a core group of gay friends. Um, and I always kind of felt like the odd man out in gay culture. Um, and I never really wanted I wanted to, like, fully give myself over to being a man, I guess. Um, right. I don't know if that makes sense. I know there's a lot of like internalized homophobia within the gay community. And I think I had a lot of that going on for a while just because I would get so 
nervous around other gay people. Um, right. And doing that ride made such a huge change just with me and how comfortable I am. And also it changed um, a lot of my viewpoints on HIV AIDS. I had no idea that you could be undetectable and untransmittable. Um, I didn't realize that it was still an epidemic going on in this country. Um, it, it, it was a, it was a huge eye opener and a great experience. I met some amazing people. Right. Yeah. I, I've heard that. I mean, I, I've, like I said, I have lots of friends that have participated in the different rides and they say it does form such a sense of community with your team and with the other riders. And I do my Palm Springs trip every year that's coming up. And last year was in June when the ride happened. So I had a lot of people come there just to decompress after doing the ride at the resort yeah. that I stay in down there. And it really is a community that's formed around that. So I think that that's very cool. Cause I'm the same way. I'm not really, I'm not a club goer. I'm not a really, uh, I, I love my tribe, but I'm not a big part of hanging out with my tribe. I hang out with my friends basically. So it really does right. kind of, from what I've heard, give that sense of community of being in an LGBTQ community. So I definitely understand where you're coming from there. Very cool. I it like does. And also you meet, you meet, so many people and of different age ranges and all who have these amazing stories. And most nights, um, you know, people get up and speak and you hear all these great stories from different people. And by the end of it, you need that decompression because it's such like a big emotional toll and you're around all these people. And it's, I don't, it's an incredible experience. And if anybody has the time, they should definitely consider doing it or even being a support person along, along the ride. There you go. Well said. Here, here to that. Well, let's talk about this entertainment journey of yours. Which came first, speaking of the chicken and the egg, was it more comedy and trying to do the stand-up, or did your um, acting lead into comedy? Talk about your comedy chops and what makes you happy yeah. to be on stage. Um, I think I've always been a bit of a comedian. You know, I was saying earlier, we moved so much growing up, and I went to so many different schools that – I had to have some sort of outgoing quality or I never would have made any friends. Um, so I was always kind of the laughing person um, and the person making a bunch of jokes in school. Uh, and I moved to New York and I started trying to do stand-up comedy there, um, performed a little bit, but still kind of finding my ground. And then once I moved out to LA, everything kind of started moving faster. I think the comedy scene in LA is a lot more approachable just because there's so many more places that you can go. Um, and so many people out here are doing it. Uh, so yeah, I started doing, um, UCB in New York, did that for about two years and then moved into stand-up comedy, which I prefer, uh, performed quite a bit around Los Angeles. Um, it's one of my big outlets, actually the, the first show I did in LA, the whole reason I did it was because, uh, I priced right that week. Uh, and I actually got called up to be one of the contestants. I was one of the first four people called up. <laughs> no way. I, I got outbid every single time by $1, and that person kept getting to go up and play the actual game. So I never actually got to play or win any. You know, when I had first moved out here, and I was kind of in a depression already, and I left that show just completely distraught because I just thought to myself, the universe <laughs> is against you. It keeps putting this carrot in front of you and then just ripping it away as soon as you think you're going to get it and things are going to be good. Um, so 
I didn't leave bed for like two days. And then finally I was like, okay, Danny, this is ridiculous. So I wrote a stand-up bit about it, went out to a Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank uh, to what I thought was just like an open night, but it turned out to be an audition. They booked me for the next week. Uh, so I started performing nice. from there. Yeah, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I love very, that story. Very, very fun. <laughs> that yeah, is so then, cool. You know, most... Yeah. Yeah, it's very it was very fun. Um no, I was gonna say then I feel like most of the um roles that I've been taking on recently, they've all been kind of comedic in nature. Um I was lucky enough I, I I did my first feature last summer, um, playing a very neurotic, uh, nerdy man married to a super hot wife and we were going through like couples counseling. And uh, I actually got that job because the director had watched some of my stand-up material. And it's like, oh, okay, I, I, I totally see this character. I think bring it on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nice. I love that. I told you you were showing, you were uh, throwing some of your pics out there on Instagram. I said, I go for the nerdy guy every time. Give me a guy with glasses and a bow tie or a tie, and I'm there. I think that's hilarious. That's a fun <laughs> role to play, I can imagine. Very now when you were with yeah, UCB, yeah. was Bill DePiro there with you at the time? I don't believe so. Is he in LA or New York? He's in New York now. He's still in New York. Yeah, he never made it to LA. Got He's it. trying to get to LA, but yeah, no. okay. All right. Yeah, I'll just gotcha. that's kind of interesting. Very, very cool. Well, and as you said, you had an amazing year last year doing a lot of different things. When did you do the thing with um Diedrich Bader, because I love, I've loved him since Drew Carey. I loved him in American Housewife. That was a fun bit. You were hilarious in that. Talk about that show. When was that? Yeah. Um, so I, last year I submitted myself for every single project that um, I came across on like Actors Access. I told my agent, I will do anything. I just want to get out there and be working. Um, and so that project was actually a student film um, that I had submitted for they sent me over the audition, taped it, sent it back, and then didn't hear anything from them, didn't really think about it because it was a student project, and I thought, I don't really want to do a student project. But, but anyway, a couple couple <laughs> weeks later, they asked me to do a callback, did the callback, um, sent it in, again, forgot about it. And then they contacted me and were like, hey, we want to book you. We're shooting in like, three weeks. Are you available? I was like, sure. We're- uh, the night before I worked and again, didn't really think much of it. It was like student film went in the next day, showed up and it was, the set was gorgeous. Um, it was one of the most professional projects that I've done just as far as like work ethic goes and people being on their, on their game. So I show up and I saw on the, the call sheet that the name Dieter Bader and I didn't know what his name was. So I just assumed this was another like actor that they found from actors access. Uh, So I showed up and I'm in makeup sitting in there and in he walks and I was like, Oh my gosh, does he like, does he teach here? Is he one of the, is he one of the producers like helping the students with these films? And then he sat down next to me and the night before I'd also watched the last episode of Veep, which he played uh, Billy Erickson on Veep and he was hilarious. So I was kind of talking to him about that. And then, um, he said, oh, I'm Diedrich, by the way. He shook my hand. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm acting with you today. <laughs> um, That's hilarious. the nicest guy I, I, I think I've ever worked with. Like, wanted everyone to be super relaxed. He was so nice. Um, as soon as we sat down, he uh, was like, 
we we did the first take and he was like don't be nervous don't be nervous it's like that i'm good man i i, I got it i'm, I'm okay uh and then we're we're working together and then out of nowhere he just goes so how long have you and your boyfriend been together or no he said uh so do you have a boyfriend and i looked at him no and said, i'm not gay i'm not gay and he goes oh i'm I, i'm sorry i didn't mean to imply and then i started laughing very hard and i was like no dude i'm super gay i just think it's funny that that was like the first question that you asked <laughs> um yeah it was it was That's super amazing. fun and he was great and project turned out so good it's like a it's the superhero film where he plays like a down on his luck superhero who's just trying to get his life back together and the whole world's kind of turning against him because he's old and lame and there's new cool cooler superheroes coming out it's called phantom specters it was very good that's so cool i love hearing all the backstory for it because i was just i was watching on your reel i don't know how you kept a straight face watching him sit on that damn yoga ball for the entire month oh my gosh it was so hard (laughs) so hard and you know what else was a little difficult with that I was supposed to be in my audition tape that I sent in, you know, the bit with me drinking the coffee. Um, I had done that in the audition tape. And I think that was also one of the reasons why they booked me because um, it wasn't written in. But on the day of the shoot, I uh, showed up and they went to grab me a coffee. And I was like, yeah, um, you know, what, what, whatever you want to get. Assuming that they were just going to give me like water colored by coffee. I had probably six cold brews during that shoot. And by the end no of it, way. I was so jittery and sweaty and my <laughs> mouth was so dry. Um, I'm supposed to lie in the, the, the scene, which I, I don't think you saw it because uh, I think I cut it in the reel. Uh, I say, Phantom sucks balls. And I couldn't get the words out because my mouth was so dry. <laughs> I love that. Oh, my God. I love stories yeah. like that. That's amazing. Too funny. Well, yeah, I was watching. It's like, yeah. I don't know how he's keeping a straight face doing that kind of a snarky guy talking to a guy sitting on a yoga ball. That would just looks impossible to me. I was loving every second yeah. of that. Hilarious. Well, talk about what other, what for you was some of your highlights for last year as well. I mean, you were doing so many projects I saw. Anything else stick out yeah. in your mind that was really a highlight? Um, you know, that, that film I shot um, where I was the nerdy um, husband. That was really a fun project. I, we shot in Vegas, so it's like my first time getting flown out somewhere. And I, I showed up, and um, the hotel room that they booked for me, the, and they told me this caveat because I was just coming out for 24 hours. I showed up, and it was at the Palazzo, I believe. And they were like, okay, just so you know, we're actually going to be using your room to shoot tomorrow as well. And I was like, okay, I mean, I'm flying back tomorrow anyway. Like, I would have checked out. So I got there, and the hotel room was like their empire suite. It was four oh different gosh. rooms with an exercise room in there. Yeah. Um, and the next day, the shoot itself was just so much fun and so funny. And then uh, my favorite project from the year was probably um, Hand to God with Desert Performs out in Palm Springs. It was a play that I did. Um, favorite plays of all time. I saw it in New York uh, years ago when I was on Broadway. And uh, – when the casting came through, I just finished doing another play called at the table um, with the road theater company here in Los Angeles. And it took up so much of my time that my boyfriend told me, um, you're not allowed to do any more plays for a little while. I was like, okay, that's, that's fine. <laughs> and then I saw my, my agent sent me this uh, casting for hand of God. And I was like, Oh, this is one of my favorite shows. 
well, it's playing a 17-year-old. Surely I'm not going to book it. Maybe I'll just – yeah, sure, submit me. And then submitted me. Got the I went in for the audition, which I didn't even think they were going to bring me in for that. Um, and the audition itself uh, is with 17-year-old, like, lusty, angsty uh, school bully and the Sunday school teacher. And they wind up, like, going at it and banging in the in the church basement. <laughs> Uh, and that was the scene that they gave me for the audition. And there's a part where he's supposed to like rip apart this poster and then like chew it up. And I'm assuming nobody else did it in the audition because I went in and I went full force and just started chewing up all of my sides. Uh, and the producers started laughing so hard. We almost had to stop the audition. Um, and I thankfully booked it. It was one of my favorite experiences, uh, on stage. Um, and those guys out in Palm Springs, like they, they know what they're doing, and it was great. Um, yeah, that, that, that was that. definitely my favorite of the year. Yeah. Nice. Oh, they have some great playhouses out in Palm Springs. They've got Desert Rose and then the one you said, and uh, there's there's some amazing yeah. stuff going on there. And let's continue in the play thing, because that's really do how I, how I know you because of our buddy Sam Zimmerman. Uh, you did the uh, – I guess you did – the read at his house first for the one that unfortunately we did, couldn't do here. Um, Isn't it romantic by Wendy Wasserstein? Yeah. Did you do a, a floor read in Stan's house or how did that? Well, I met Stan um, almost a year ago through the road theater company. He directed like a stage reading that um, we did. And I, we went, we went over to Stan's for rehearsals for that. And as soon as I got there and realized that he had written for the Golden Girls and the Gilmore Girls, I was so starstruck that I think that whole rehearsal, <laughs> I was just like clammed up in the corner. Like, I don't want to look like an idiot. I don't want to look like an idiot. Um, which I, I guess I didn't because he, he used me again a year later for this Wonder You Lost Your Scene project. Um, he he um, created this whole concept. We did a night, uh, two weekends. And each day we did a stage reading of three of Wendy Wasserstein's plays back to back to back uh, in Santa Monica. Um, It was sold out each night that we did it. And it was incredible. Um, We did uh, Uncommon Women and then Isn't It Romantic and then The Heidi Chronicles. Uh, And Isn't It Romantic got stage reading that we decided to produce it. Um, And also the cast for it was just incredible. Um, Stan knows everybody and he has a great reputation because he's just a great guy and a great director uh, and writer. Um, So he got like Amanda Burst from Married with Children was in it. Uh, Lucy DeVito was in it. Um, Andrea Bowen from Desperate Housewives, uh, Raviv Oldman. There are just a bunch of incredible actors who have all had their own shows doing you know, this kind of smaller project. Um, and then when Stan decided he wanted to produce it um, for the stage, everybody was still on board because we just had such a good time doing it. And Wendy Walter seems an incredible playwright. And yeah, any chance to do her work on a stage, an actor should take. That's fantastic. Well, Stan is, Stan's an amazing friend of the show. He's going to be out in Palm Springs with us this summer. Uh, I've told, I've told Stan many times, I said, Whenever he moves, I want him to just cut a piece out of his carpeting of the living room and send it to me. I want to frame it because he's had so many amazing people do table yes, reads in his living yes, room from George Dakai to Leslie Jordan to everyone in between mm-hmm. that it's just amazing. I call Stan my one degree of separation from anybody in the entertainment industry. From everybody, everybody, yes, right. yes. 
Uh, and he might kill me if I don't mention this. We are still doing Isn't It Romantic? It's going up, I believe, in September at the Complex Theater in Hollywood. Everyone come out and see it. There you go. We are going to do that. We'll probably have you and a couple other casts on as well. Uh, Mindy Sterling's been a great friend of the show. I love Mindy. She's amazing. And uh, so, yeah, maybe we'll have you guys all back on when we're able to do that again. She's the best. Isn't she amazing? Yeah. She's so funny, too. She's I'm so, so funny. Yes. <laughs> Love, uh. Mindy. What other projects? I mean, we've been quarantined down. Anything you're kind of hoping to get out of the can as we start to slowly open up and people start to give the yeah. words they're going to start doing things again? What do you got in the works? You know, I was actually in the middle of filming a pilot when <laughs> all of this happened. Um, we got through day one of shooting um, a pilot called Bliss Interpreted. Um, it's an independent pilot that's being produced. It hasn't been picked up or anything yet, but I got the email this week that we're going to go back and start shooting again, uh, hopefully end of July, early August. Um, so that's in the can there. And then, um, I somehow during quarantine, um, booked another play. I'm actually going to be doing angels in America, um, in November with a company called Shakespeare on the deck. Yeah. Which we're doing both parts, um, in repertory. So it's going to be a, very, very heavy project. Um, I went in and to, for, for the role of Joe, um, and during the audition, um, I had also submitted myself for Lewis, and we're going through it, and then they were giving me some notes, and all the notes were kind of things to pull me out of Lewis and into Joe, and I said to the director, like, you know, I also submitted myself for Lewis, and the next day, they emailed me and asked me to read for him, and I, I wound up booking it, which I'm so stoked for it's such like juicy material and again one of those things where like right. an actor who's able to do that show on stage should definitely do it if for nothing else and just to get the experience and yeah i'm stoked for that uh we'll start rehearsals for that pretty soon and then um i just went in for two different sci-fi shows um they're both little independent projects i think it's interesting that um there's a lot of sci-fi castings right now i think everyone just wants so badly to get out of this reality <laughs> Um, and watch something that maybe just takes place on a whole other planet. Um, so I'm waiting to hear back about those, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. That's amazing. Congratulations. That sounds like a lot of things coming up. I'm very excited for you. Yeah, I'm, 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 su- I'm super pumped about it. It feels, uh, it feels very good. And, you know, I'm also looking forward to auditioning again. I, aside from a lot of voiceover stuff and a couple, couple Zoom guys, I, I miss going to the office. I miss the adrenaline. I miss seeing people. I miss talking to people. And yeah, I'm excited for, for the whole world to kind of reopen and maybe reopen a little bit better than when it closed. Nice. I, I agree a hundred percent. Now I did read kind of a funny thing that your goal in life, in life is to one day play a Phil Dumphy type character from modern family. I love to say <laughs> dad humor isn't bad. It's rad humor. Um, talk about yes. that. What draws you to those kind of roles? That's a hilarious thing. Oh man, um, I, I, I mean, I'm, for as long as I can remember, people have called me Grandpa Dan um, and made fun of me <laughs> for always being the dad in the group. Um, I, I love dad jokes. Phil Dumpy, I think, is one of the funniest characters on TV. Um, that actor is just incredible. He was also incredible in Skeleton Twins, which was a completely different role. Which, I mean, that's a whole other thing, but. Uh, yeah, my, my goal is eventually to be on a sitcom. Um, and it'll probably be, you know, 10 years from now once I'm more in that age range and 
play like the lovable American dad. Um, growing up, like, like I said, we, we moved a lot. And, um, there's just always so much going on in my household. There were five kids and we always had like a cousin living with us too. And I, I don't know. I, I found a lot of comfort in watching sitcoms as a kid. And uh, those dad roles, there's, there's, there's something so fun about them and so unique about them. And uh, yeah, one day, one day I'm going to have some sort of role very similar to that. There you go. Very, very cool. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, Danny Gomez, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you. We have to have you on back real soon, and maybe hopefully you can come out and join us in Palm Springs. That'd be a blast. Yes. Yes, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. This is so fun. Well, I'm glad you took the time. I do have to end on one last thing that I found in the research, and there's so many to choose from in today's day and age with everything that's going on. But I need to know, who's the dickhead of the day, Danny? <laughs> you are daddy bob i love oh it my very God. very cool <laughs> i love it danny gomez let everyone know where they can find you because they have to enjoy your instagram as much as i do where they can find you on uh any social media or any websites or anything where should they look for you at? yes please uh i'm on instagram danny lee gomez uh you can also find me on my website dannyleegomez.com really anything danny lee gomez you go. It's been a pleasure talking to you, my friend. Stay on the line. We're going to play out a little bit of music here. When we come back, I will be back with another great guest. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. I don't know. 
All righty, guys, we are back. That was hello from our good buddy, Tony Award-winning Levi Christ. And speaking of hello, I'm so happy to welcome for the first time onto our show my next guest. He's an interesting trajectory in his career going from a farm town in Washington to the Coast Guard, where we could ask him what he did, but he probably couldn't tell us because of his top security clearance. He went to being on the ground floor at DirecTV and then producing exceptional digital entertainment, whether for companies like Disney, Marriott, or Yahoo. Along with being an award-winning producer, he now travels the world educating brands and marketers on how to stop interrupting what consumers are interested in and start becoming what they're interested in through brand storytelling. He's so good at it, he's even trademarked as the brand storyteller himself. So please welcome for the very first time to the show, Mr. David Beebe. David, how you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me. It's a, a great intro you did. Couldn't write it better myself. So. Well, you have here. written those stories, my friend. You are the storyteller extraordinaire. I appreciate you taking the time. How are you, we finding you today in the middle of all this? I mean, you're traveling all the time. Is it weird for you to be home for a couple of months, or how are you holding up? Uh, it's actually, you know, it, it, it's uh, nice. Uh, traveling, uh, you know, looks looks fun. Um, and But when you when you do it all the time, it, it, it can wear you down um, in every way. And so uh, the pictures look great for Instagram. But uh, it's uh, nonstop being on a plane and destinations and, you know, uh, not actually being able to spend a lot of time in each destination to actually explore it because you're there to, for a speaking engagement or a workshop or whatever it may be. So it's, uh, it's, it's been a, actually a nice, nice break. Well, very good. We'll touch a little bit on your business now, but I want to kind of go through some background first. Why don't you start off by telling me uh, where did you grow up? And what kind of a kid were you prior to Coast Guard? I, uh, you know, I grew up uh, in Washington State all throughout. My dad owned a construction company, and so we did, you know, had the opportunity to to move a lot and see a lot of different things. And so, for I'd say the first part of my childhood, I grew up in and around Seattle, and then the second half, about 14 years old, uh, he retired and. And uh, we moved to a, a farm um, on the other side of Washington State, eastern Washington, uh, in a small, small place called Palisades, Washington, <clears throat> uh, which really isn't even a city. It's actually a 14-mile uh, central uh, uh, narrow sort of farmland that uh, <laughs> alfalfa and, and wheat and all of that. And so uh, quite a change going from the city to, um, you know, to a very remote place. And uh, so I had the opportunity to do do a lot of um, exploring and hiking and, and outdoors, and so that's really how I spent the uh, second part of childhood growing up. Nice. And then you uh, went into the Coast Guard pretty quickly out of high school. Talk about what kind of led you that direction. Were, was it kind of planned out for you? Is it something you thought you would help learn about yourself? And then talk about your whole experience there because you have a very interesting story on what happened there. Yeah, I think it was, you know, certainly one of those things. Most of my family had been uh, in in the military, and so I would say it wasn't uh, required, but um, highly suggested that you, <laughs> you, you serve. And, um, and so 
you know, growing in and around Seattle, obviously around the water, I saw a lot of, of the Guard, which is one of the branches of, of the military. Um, it's the smallest one. And so a lot of people don't know that it is actually part of, of the military. But um, I uh, love the water, love being on the water near it. And so that made sense. And their mission is about, you know, law enforcement and search and rescue and obviously navigation and, and you know, all things to do with uh, coastal waterfronts. And so I, um, right after high school, I wanted to uh, get out and explore. And so I, I joined them and went to Cape May, New Jersey in the middle of the summer for, for basic training. And uh, after I completed that, they said, um, you're going to Long Beach, California for my first assignment. Um, I had never been, uh, you know, to California. And so that's how I actually ended up in the L.A. area uh, at 18 after training. And then um, so I spent half my time in, in Long Beach uh, doing uh, patrol work. And then, uh, and then the second part of my career I was in Kodiak Island, Alaska, where I worked at a, a communication station uh, that ran all of the communications and operations for the West Coast, um, everything that was happening. Wow. And so very small, remote town, uh, remote town again, and um, did a lot of uh, the communication facilitation of all the operations that was happening. And so um, and then I ended up coming back to L.A. afterwards. Well, I want to talk about uh, your coming out journey because um, the coming out story doesn't interest me as much, even though yours is very unique. I want to know when you first came out to yourself and you did come out in the middle of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the Coast Guard. Talk about that a little bit. And then where do you feel you kind of first found your LGBTQ tribe? Yeah, I think, you know, I, you know, growing up, I certainly felt uh, different um, and, and knew there was something. And I think you slowly figure that out through your teenage years. And um, and so going into the, the, the military, um, I knew that I was um, gay, but I would say I wasn't necessarily out to to other people at that point. Um, and so when I joined, that was during the time of the the Clinton administration, which was uh, don't ask, don't tell, which essentially meant what it says. Uh, we won't ask you, and you don't tell us, and everything will be fine. In theory, that sounds like it works well. Um, but in <laughs> fact, uh, there was still, you know, if, you know, imagine that that world where if you let's say that you did something or someone took something the wrong way or uh, someone wanted to get you in trouble essentially they could still report you and an investigation would happen and and then mm -hmm. if in fact you were found to be uh you know a part of the LGBT community um you would then get discharged and so it was always a fine line that you that you were writing essentially of of trying to make sure that, you know, you didn't do anything and that you didn't get investigated. And so it was very uncomfortable. And ultimately, uh, it was around it was probably 21 at the time, decided that, uh, you know, it wasn't something that I was comfortable with, that I wanted to be open and out and, and be who I was and not deal and, and not, and not live in this 
bubble with this fear that if someone did say something, I would get in trouble. And so I ultimately decided to, um, you know, tell them, um, which uh, obviously is if part of the thing is if you tell them, then you do get discharged. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I, I did tell them I went through that process, which was very, you know, uh, very, uh, very difficult to do in that situation. I would say that people knew that I worked with. I worked, you know, in a communication station. And so you worked, you know, very closely with people and hung out with them. And so you, people knew and, and no one cared. But again, at the same time, I didn't want it to uh, to be this secret thing. And um, right. and so I, uh, you know, looked up, literally opened up the the manuals and, and figured out how to, how do you do this? And, you know, I had to write a letter uh, to the commanding officer that said, you know, I, David Beebe, uh, admit that I'm homosexual. Like they actually gave you the wording oh to use. And wow. uh, you, you then go request a meeting with the commanding officer. And, and in the military, uh, which is very, you know, rank and file and, and very structured, one just right. doesn't, um, request a meeting with your commanding officer. Um, it has to go through <laughs> several layers of, of, of command. And so it did that. Um, and, you know, I still very distinctly today remember walking in to his office and handing him uh, the letter and he opened it up and, and, you know, he, he read it and he said, looked at me and said, um, you know, I've never uh, had to deal with this before. Um, but I will tell you one thing that you will, you will be taken care of and I'll ensure that you are, the, the process is as smooth as, as it can be. Oh, nice. And so, you know, very reassuring moment. Now I did, you know, we did work in a top secret communications facility, uh, and very small crew, obviously word gets out. Um, and so, uh, people quickly knew what was happening and, and I would say I, um, the people that I worked with didn't, uh, and didn't really care. Um, they went through a process. They gave me, uh, you know, a bunch of recognition and awards on my way out. Um, they put me under military police, um, uh, sort of back and forth between work and, and home to make sure that, someone if someone did have a problem with it they weren't going to do something um i did receive a an honorable discharge so received all my veteran benefits um and it was it was um it was a probably the one of the better experiences um that that i had that probably a lot of people didn't have because i know there were a lot of other elsewhere throughout the military a lot of other very negative experiences that people faced when they did come out so that's an amazing story, though. And how did the secret clearance go into that? I mean, you always hear in the movies them worried that the gays are going to give away the secrets and everything. They're going to be tempted. Did they handle um, your clearance in any specific way that was interesting? Um, you know, getting your sort uh, of top secret clearance in the military is a very um, uh, I would say you don't really know how it happens. Um, you okay. know, you fill out a bunch of documentation, okay. obviously, in history. Um, investigators go back and look at, you know, everything through your childhood. They interview people. 
Uh, now, at that point, you're you know, 18, 19 years old. There's not a lot of history to look at, right? So right. Um, right. It, it, unless you really screwed up as a child, the the, the process of it um, is, is pretty fast. And so, you know, they did interview people and, and do their process, and I received that and was able to work there at the station. And um, it is, it's something that gets renewed, you know, every year. Um, and then when you leave, you are then debriefed and given all the rules of that, you know, what, what you can say and what you can't say and, and all of that. Um, all of the material that we worked with every day was uh, shredded at the end of the night, was burnt and shredded. So there was no evidence or anything no, of that. Um, and so it was. Um, the, the fascinating thing about uh, anyone who's had a, a top secret clearance is that um, people people think, wow, you you know all of these things. And um, in reality, that yes, but it's very contextual, right? You gotcha. you, you right. would have to you would want to you would you would have to have a reason to want to know that to someone's benefit. Um, and so if, if it doesn't benefit you, which is the majority of the people, uh, civilian workforce, it, it's really not that interesting about <laughs> information. Gotcha. <laughs> Makes sense. All right. Well, I appreciate you cleared that up. Well, let's kind of go in to, from there, you talk about deciding when you, when you were discharged, you decided to go back to LA and you actually live in your car for a while while working. Talk about that experience. You you, you go from there to being a uh, coordinator for DirecTV. What are you doing that time in your car? Are you learning things? Are you spending your time at the library? Are you working nonstop? Or what was that transition period like from the service to your first uh, major job? Yeah, it was, you know, I, I came back to L.A. because obviously I'd spent some time um, here and I knew people. Um, and there was actually, a, uh, you know, my very first boyfriend uh, at the time um, was here. And so I ended up coming back and um, built a, a network of friends through that. Uh, didn't, you know, one of the most difficult things that um, – any one of the military does is when they transition from military to a, a civilian workforce is how do you translate the work that you've done in the military to, um, to, you know, the real life, to a corporate world. Um, right. Meaning the terminologies are different. Um, the, the, well, a lot of the work experience is the same. You have to spend a, a lot of time of getting people to understand, okay, if you, you did that in that military world, how does that, translate to a you know a job of a certain type and so because I worked in communications um, I was able to translate that experience um, into really I would say you know a broad sort of entertainment communications world and so I didn't um, you know I at that point when I got out of the military I, I was not out to um, my parents yet and so um, you know, I essentially told them that I was, uh, you know, out of get, getting, you know, was out of the military and, and going back to L.A. And so there was a, a significant amount of pride um, um, that I didn't, uh, you know, of, of me wanting to be able to figure out um, what I was going to do and be able to survive and, and get a job uh, because I, I, I didn't want to go back home. 
right? Totally and so, that. yeah, sure. Um, it was uh, there was a, a time where it was like I, I didn't have a job, didn't really have uh, that much money, and um, you know, it was an unfortunate situation where I did have a car. And, and look, being uh, in Los Angeles, you've got uh, beautiful beaches. And so I, you know, I did live out of my car for a couple of months until I figured things out. Um, but during that time, it was a lot of, okay, again, how do I take this experience um, and, and translate it? How do I, how do I network? Um, and, and so it wasn't a, I would say it wasn't a, um, it was, a, it was a quote homeless experience, but also in the beautiful backdrop of, of Los Angeles and the beaches and all of that. Right. And, um, and so it, it wasn't, um, the, the same harsh rallies that a lot of other people who are homeless, you know, face day to day. Um, yeah. and, but I was able to, you know, through networking and, and meeting people, um, someone introduced me to, uh, a, a role that was open at a, a company and it was called direct TV and it was very early in the years. I think maybe the company was three years four years old then. Um, so very small in a sense, just when the idea of satellite television was, was coming out and it was a, a coordinator position working on the, on the broadcasting production, post-production side. And so, you know, I was able to uh, put a resume together that matched those skills and um, able to get interviewed. And, um, and that really then started a, a career in entertainment there. And you really kind of uh, taught yourself at least or rose through it relatively quickly going up to work for the companies we talked about, Disney, ABC, Yahoo. Did did anyone understand what it was at that time you were doing? I mean, like you said, that's really early on in content creation and digital especially. Was it a trailblazing more, kind of a, a learn-as-you-go, or how did that path go for you? I, I, you know, my my personality itself is is very curious in nature and wanting to learn. And so when I was working at when I got that job, it, because obviously uh, a satellite company are broadcasting twenty four seven, and so the company operated twenty four seven. And so the I, I the position that I took was actually a, like an overnight role. Um, hmm. So you would actually start, um, you know, in the evening and work through the next morning. And so what I would do during the day was I actually enrolled myself in, in college at the Long Beach Community College and, and started attending classes. I would sleep somehow in between then, then go to uh, DirecTV <laughs> and work all night. Um, and at that time, I would say, you know, I had that role for about three years. Um, and then I ended up going to uh, the, the broadcast center in Long Beach, or not Long Beach, in um Marina Del Rey, California, to help launch that one. And so it was a little bit different role. Um, but at that time, the idea of, of, you know, that was very much still traditional television and ads. Um, websites were what I would call brochure websites, you know, very basic information. Right. There wasn't, um, there was video, but it was very choppy, you know, nothing really played right. Um, but it, and so it wasn't, uh, you know, very basic. And then I ended up getting, um, the last job over the seven years at DirecTV was actually working on DirecTV.com as a copywriter. And I was, um, and that really got into the content creation side of it. And, 
and then working on uh, into the digital side as well. So I was able to one do content creation, and even then, one thing I tell people now, you know, whatever job you're in, is always think about like what if there's something else you're passionate about, you know, figure out how do you get time to to learn about other things in your company. How do you, um, right. you know, whether it's uh, make a deal with to do some sort of trade out or get 20% of your time. And so one of the things I wanted to learn about was the on-air promotion side of how do you, you know, you're cutting promos for shows, producing original content. And so, you know, I somehow convinced that team and my manager and their manager that I could work on that stuff as well. And um, it fortunately worked out so I could spend some of my time doing that and and then that led to a bunch of other opportunities um beyond what the core core job was that's fantastic i love that and i think that is a key statement you need to first know what you want to do and you do have to seek it out and ask for it i don't think anyone's ever got anything they haven't asked for very few things this life are given right so right absolutely and that's, and that's where <laughs> you know that's where it's that's what i say if you're if you're in a job and look as a uh, you know, even the the cop. The reason I got the copywriting job was because before that, there was a magazine at the time called Venice Magazine. Uh, it was a, a small regional magazine that was distributed through Los Angeles. Um, very very glossy celebrity interview magazine, um, and but with you know big advertisers, all the studios, and so it was a it was a good business and it had been around for a long time. And I right. wanted to be a writer for them and do interviews, and so. I would call and email the editor. Um, I probably did, I'd say probably six months of this of calling and saying, hey, look, I want to be a writer and, you know, here's some writing samples. And could I, could you just give me like a, just give me like a small, a small celebrity interview, right? Just a, something to try. Like, I don't want to be paid for it. I just want to get the experience. And finally, after, you know, I would call and email at least once a week. And finally, one day, I remember distinctly, uh, my phone rang and it was the the editor in chief and she said she said literally like oh my god stop calling me like she's the only reason <laughs> I'm calling you is because you're annoying the hell out of me and you and so I'm calling you back come in come meet with me we'll figure you know we'll figure something out and I went in and and met with her and and that helped me and build. Uh, a writing portfolio of, of interviews, which then I use that to get the writing job, copywriting job at at DirecTV. And when I look back on that, I, I had no business being a writer, no business being a copywriter. <laughs> um, I'm still not a good good writer because I write um, as I, you know, in, in I write in a way as the way that I'm thinking um, right. or talking in my head, and so. Um, conscious, right? I, right, and so I'm not. Uh, I, I know that about myself, but for whatever reason, I was able to convince them to to let me do that. And but those <laughs> all those things happened because I I sought them out and I and I asked and I knew that if I did this, that would help build upon the next thing. And um, and that's something that I tell everyone when you know if I'm, I'm talking to them about their career or giving them advice, it's like. If there's no one way to get that's never a straight line um and there's no one way to get uh, i i can tell you how i got to where i am or experiences i had the opportunity to be a part of but 
you are not going to do it the same way because it was my journey. Um, And you have to figure out what your journey is and the ways that you're going to do it. So I can give you advice and say, you know, go and bug people and ask and figure out a way to do it. Um, But you're going to have to go do that. Right. Well said. Very good advice. Well, let's talk about moving on to your next project. You go to Marriott International out of D.C., ended up going through uh, their content studio in MLive and part of Marriott Traveler. Talk about that experience. What did you learn from them, and what did you bring to the table there? Yeah, well, after, you know, in, in between that, after DirecTV, I actually went to Disney ABC and um, worked on, on the television side and the digital side there. So I went to to start what would become the, the Disney ABC television group digital studio and, and built that from scratch, which is really about developing and, and producing um, called derivative content for television shows. So um, at that time we were doing, you know, behind the scenes making of um, webisodes for shows like Ugly Betty and Lost and Desperate Housewives. And, so those really sharpened my, I would say, storytelling skills because we were doing webisodes and live shows and all of this stuff, all this content for for um, online and, and mobile phones, and then even live shows for like the Oscars and, and Emmys. And so um, I, I I built that out, and then I felt at a certain point, like in any career, that you maybe have felt like you you've done everything that you can do. Um, and I think people reach that in, in, in any role that they're in and you kind of have a choice then you can stay and be very comfortable, um, you know, and have a great job and, and make money. And, um, and and a lot of people like to do that. It's, it's repetitive. It's the same. They don't like change. And and if that's you, that's fine. Um, but it wasn't me. Like I, I felt like I had reached the point where there's not a lot of, uh, of new innovative things that we can do here. And so I, I left and, and then was an independent producer producing for, for Yahoo and, um, and then producing, uh, produced a show with Phil Rosenthal who created Everybody Loves Raymond. Uh, we did a show called I'll Have What Phil's Having, which is on, on Netflix. And, um, and then, and then talk Marriott about that had, one a bit because um, I'm a foodie and we're, we talk about foodies a lot on this show. So talk about that experience because I'm interested in that. You guys kind of went all over. Tell tell me the uh, what brought that show on and what was some of your best experiences on that? Yeah, it was you know it was an in, in, interesting um, uh, interesting show too. I would say that. The show itself was a, a food travel show, hour long, uh, where Phil would go uh, all around the world um, and meet interesting people and chefs and learn the culture and, and try foods. And so, if you look at it from a creative perspective, from a format perspective, um, you know, is it groundbreaking? Not necessarily. But what made it different and unique was Phil, because Phil is a, was a comedian and then started, you know, producing. Everybody loves Raymond, and but he was not on the show. He was behind the scenes, but still very, right. very fun and funny. And so, his personality is what made the show unique and different from all the other shows. And so, it was very much driven by him. And uh, again, uh, this this situation where I had met him um, in a in a pitch meeting before, you know, maybe, and then about a year later. 
um, I reached out to him and I said, "Hey, what are you, you know, what are you working on? What's what's going on?" He said, "Well, I've got this idea for this show, um, you know, where I want to be on camera and be the host and go meet these interesting people and cultures and and really this global perspective into food and and how it's different and and really that idea of how people come together around a table and and eat and um, may have different beliefs and views, but it's how you connect through." you know, that experience. Um, and so right. this was a pre um, Bourdain too, back at the time, wasn't it? I don't think he was on then at that point. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. And he, um, and so it was, um, interesting show. You know, it's a funny story that his agency, um, you know, taken it out and then pitched it and, and no one, you know, had, had bought it or interest. And so he said, look, I've got this thing. He said, what do you think? Can you develop it further with me? And, um, and do you think we could sell it somewhere? And I said, yeah, I think, um, you know, I love the concept. And I said, look, I've got a relationship with, with PBS. Um, I've done some shows with them. Great show for them. And so we, we flew out to uh, Boston to the WGBH station, which is the local PBS affiliate there. And uh, we, we sold the show to them. And so it started, uh, started airing on, on PBS nationally and then um and then it eventually moved to to netflix but um it was again an example of how do you you know how how do you take something that you're trying to do and what's that different perspective or that spin to get it done and um we were able to to sell it and get it on the air um and uh you know again it's it's one of the greatest memories from the show i remember when we sold the show um, and, uh, you know, a bunch of us went to dinner there. Uh, w- one of the things that, that Phil does is when you go to dinner with him, uh, you know, they bring the menus out. And he says, no, 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 take the menus away. And he says, we'll take one of everything. Oh, and, my goodness. <laughs> uh, we'll just, and, and you just pass it around the table family style. So, you know, in a group of five, six people, one of everything time equals four hours plus a lot of food and a lot of wine and a great conversation. But it's a great way to, you know, have, have dinner. And um, and so it was, a, it was a great experience overall. I love that. Very, very cool. Yeah, because I, I didn't realize the I had my timing off. I didn't know the merit was after that because I love all the little small spinoffs from the Seattle Grace. And uh, as you said, you worked with uh, Mode, which was part of Ugly Betty and the Scrubs interns. So that was kind of – I wasn't aware of those – shows were they web-based or were they they weren't actually on um television were they no so they were web-based so the idea then was how do you because this was a time obviously when now okay look uh you've got more people online videos now working you know you can stream video uh very clearly um on mobile devices and 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 on a web browser um and the very first show that we did webisodes for was Ugly Betty. And uh, the idea overall was, okay, if people are watching on, you know, once a week on the network, how do we keep them engaged um, between episodes? So let's create an online version of the show, which is five to six minute episodes that people can watch um, online and where the storylines and the and because it had the same talent in it, the storylines would come from on air to online and back. But 
if you didn't watch the online episodes, you, you didn't miss anything either. So it was a right. extension, a derivative of the show, but the idea of, okay, you've got content on air. Now how let's continue to build the community offline, and then that'll drive them to to watch more, you know, on on the right. And it builds so, up the interesting characters because I think Michael Yuri and Becky Newton's characters on there was really fun, kind of offset of the show. So I think it was a great choice to use them as well. So very cool. I love that. Nice. Yeah, no, they were right. they, they were great. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, continue on. I didn't want to interrupt. I apologize. Where were we out here? Yeah, no, it was it was a you know it was a good experience, and from that we continued to do you know then derivatives of other shows, um, and then somewhere in the middle of all that, that's when when ABC was the first network. We launched full episodes online as well. Um, you know, I remember when we did that, uh, the network was. Um, I would say there was a lot of pushback internally um, because we we had launched it with um, with Apple at the time, yeah. so it wasn't like a an ABC.com thing. It was actually with Apple, and gotcha. when that happened, it was uh, the leadership of the network was very much um, well. You're going to cannibalize if people can watch shows online, they're not going to watch them on air. Um, which wasn't true at all um, and proved itself out that, no, actually people will continue to watch them on on TV, but then they can also watch them after online. And so it actually increased viewership and engagement with, with the show and, and the overall brand. And so eventually all the shows moved online and then ABC, we launched a full episode player. So now you could watch them on, on the website as well, not just Apple and um, you know now, of course, everything is uh, all episodes are either streaming or online or on a network or subscription based. And, yeah, everything's becoming subscription based, right? It's becoming all mini networks again, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because everything was broken down once before, and they always end up going back together. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays. Do you see that as a continuing trend from now on out, just from revenue stream? that the bigger companies have to do this now, or how do you see this trend playing out? Yeah, I think, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, people want good content um, and, and great storytelling. And so whether it is streamed to them, whether, you know, with commercials or they're paying a price to get them without commercials or they're watching them on demand or they're binging them or they're still in a network um, schedule where they're released weekly, um, there's everyone's sort of viewing habits are, are different. There's so much different ways to consume that content. Um, if you've got a great show, people are going to watch and you're going to build a community around that. Um, that doesn't mean that everything works. Um, I think the, the, the biggest thing that's really changed there is that idea of, of advertising, right? Is that if, um, is that I don't want to watch ads today. Um, you know, so if I'm, I, I will pay a price to not watch ads um, and right. go online and people that, you know, uh, there's complete uh, browsers that are set up to block all advertising. <laughs> um, people don't want anything that inter- <laughs> exactly. interrupts them. And so um, you've got to find new ways to, to reach consumers. And that's where we've seen the growth of branded entertainment, which is, um, same thing. It's a show. It just happens to be funded by a brand. 
um, versus a, a platform or a network producing it and then going to the brands and saying, hey, be part of our show. What's happening today is brands are saying, hey, we're going to create the show. Uh, whether it's a, a documentary, a film, a, a TV show, a podcast, um, which means we're going to own the show and we're going to insert ourselves into it, but not in a way that's going to interrupt the story or annoy you. Um, you're going to know it's from a brand, um, but again, it's not a commercial. It's true story-driven content, and so that's what brand entertainment means, and that's where you're seeing a lot more brands step up and say, rather than me pay you a fee to take my commercials and insert them into your show, I'm going to create the show and that. actually own the IP and be part of it. Well, let's finish up by reverse engineering that a little bit because we're running out of time, and we're going to have you back on another episode real quick to talk about branding and marketing and everything. But let's kind of reverse engineer. I have a lot of actors and writers, producers, um, directors listen to the show. What recommendations can you give to them as they are building a concept to incorporate a brand identity? What do you recommend to people when you do your speaking how to create something whole like this? What what do they need to know how to integrate in order to be a success? And I know that's a big topic, but just for a couple of pointers, wise. <laughs> sure. Well, I, you know, I think the biggest thing is you've got to know what your what your narrative is, what you what you stand for, what you care about, and so, you know, if you're a brand, consumers want to know that today, um, and you're seeing that. Um, even unfold today um, as more and more stuff in the news and, and more quality is, is is coming out, you're seeing that consumers want to understand what does this brand stand for? What do they care about? Um, what are their, what are sort of their, the causes that they're going to invest in beyond what they sell or what they do? And so, um, if you take that to an individual level, it's the same thing, right? As personal branding is what do I, what am I about? So call that sort of what's your main narrative. Um, and then underneath that narrative, um, you know, what is, what are the stories you're going to tell to support that? And so same thing on the brand side is what stories am I, am I going to tell um, as a brand is to that ladders up to my narrative. And so when you think narrative, whether you're a brand or individual, you know, it typically comes down to, to a, a one word or two words or three words. Um, it is, is what, do you, what do you want people to think about you um, or feel about you? And, um, and so that is what, that's what that brand is. That's what that narrative is. And then what are those repetitive things that you're going to do? What is that repetitive content you're going to create that's going to back up and support that narrative? I love that. And I mean, one of the big buzzwords nowadays is authenticity as well. Um, do you have to take that into mind? Because can people fake authenticity? I wouldn't think they really could. Where, where do you see that playing into today's branding and creating concepts? Yeah, I mean, it certainly is a big buzzword. Um, it can mean a lot of things. That, I mean, absolutely, it can, be, it can be faked. I mean, I think if you look at influencer marketing, you're seeing a lot of um, influencers and creators that, you know, they wanted to create a, a brand or a narrative uh, that portrayed a certain image. Um, and, mm -hmm. yeah. and so they developed content around to support that. And <clears throat> while it maybe looked authentic, um, it wasn't really authentic. And so you're seeing 
them now get called out for that because really their their true selves are have have started to show or other content comes out that um, goes against that sort of brand that they they built and so same thing on the brand side um, it, you know it's one thing to say uh, what you stand for today um, or in today's conversations of, of Black Lives Matter it's what is well that's a statement but now consumers want to understand okay well, what are you actually doing about that right it's really easy to say mm-hmm. something or put something forward right. <clears throat> but i think you what what that next step is between authenticity is now action how do you back that up with action nice very very good well i can talk about this stuff all day long i find it fascinating and you are you're just an amazing person to talk to. I appreciate you taking the time to do all this, David. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Well, we will have you back real soon. Like I said, we're going to try to get you in Palm Springs, and we'll talk a little more about going into brand and maybe bring on some fellow actors and directors and how they can kind of work together with that. I have so much I want to learn from you that I will be talking to you. That is for sure. Where can everybody um, find you? Uh, if they wanted to reach out and talk to you or, or maybe book you for you do some amazing speaking engagements, hopefully when all this starts lifting up and people can gather again, uh, what's the best <laughs> way to get a hold of you? Um, you know, the the best way is, you know, it's the website, so it's davidbb.com um, or, you know, LinkedIn um, is a great resource. And so um, my social handles are all the same, but uh, LinkedIn is one of the best places for really anybody to to connect and start to build their their personal brand as well. Well, David, I appreciate you giving us some background here. I look forward to getting to know you more in the future and having you on in the future. And you do amazing work, my friend. Thanks so much for being on the Left to Straight Show. Likewise. Thanks for having me and look forward to seeing you in Palm Springs. All right. Stay on the line for me, guys. We're going to play out a little music here. When I come back, I will have another guest to talk to you about. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network.
And if you reach the sky Then on your way back down That's our buddy Matt Stern from Canada with Wanderer. Guys, thanks so much for listening to Let's The Straight Show today. I really appreciate you tuning in. Thanks so much to our special guest today. I really appreciate our buddy Andy Dugan from Equality, Ohio, a real live, honest-to-goodness lawyer, letting us know what this LGBTQ equality ruling from the Supreme Court means. So we now have protections in the workplace, which is nice because Ohio, where I am at right now, was one of the 26 states that does not have that. So officially, I cannot be fired now for being gay. So I'm very excited about that. Still a lot of work to do. We can still be fired for a lot of other things. We can't get housing. We can't do a bunch of other things. Um, But now workplace is not one of the things we have to worry about. So thanks again for... uh, Andy to come on. I appreciate it. Big shout out to Danny Lee Gomez. Amazing actor. You guys got to check out his comedy. He's really funny and be on the lookout for him. He's a rising star, I think, in the acting field. And finally, thank you to David Beebe for coming on. Brand marketer extraordinaire. He is the brand storyteller and a pretty good producer in his own right. Be sure to tune back in tomorrow. We'll be here the rest of the week, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 6 o'clock Pacific time, 9 o'clock Eastern time, right here on Blog Radio. My guest tomorrow, we're going to start off with a little pop culture minute with our special correspondents, Josh and Jeff, and their little J&J buzz, see what they have on their radar this week. Then I have two special guest interviews for you coming on live for the first hour is going to be Florian Klein. He is a German-born actor, writer, producer, been over the States for quite a while now. His play that he wrote and directed, Shooting Star, won an Ovation Award, and he has a very interesting story to tell. And then after that, we're going to bring Josh McKenna on. Josh is a graphic artist. He's created one of the most iconic stickers in LGBT Instagram history. And he has just moved over here from London time. So that is it. We're going to have a great time. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Left of Straight, L-E-F-T-O-F-S-T-R and the number eight. The Facebook page is Left of Straight Show. And you can send me a friend request at Scott Fullerton on Facebook. 
Thanks so much for Han and for Royal being in the control room today and running the boards for us. We will see you next time on the Left of Straight show. Have a great evening, everyone. Bye.